Hey everyone, my name is Dan and I'm one of the pastors here at HTBB and I'm so excited to get to look at the Bible with you today. Although, if I'm honest, I'm also a little bit sad as this is my last ever talk as the Associate Vicar here at HTBB. In a few weeks time, Kate and the family and I will be moving to the UK uh, to head up a church called St. Peter's Brighton. So um, if you happen to be thinking of coming to study in the UK, I can highly recommend the University of Sussex. And if you know of anyone in Brighton, do link us up. We've already got one person's sister who's going to be invited to join our Alpha group next term. So sad to be finishing our time here in Malaysia, but also excited for today, as this is the second part of a talk that I've been thinking about for a long, long time, looking at Jesus' great commandment, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself, which in our first talk, we summarized as this, to love God with passion and to love people on purpose. And that as we hang our lives on these two things, we find everything that we're looking for. So last time we focused on to love God with passion, or if you want a summary of a summary, El Guap. And this week we're going to be looking at loving people on purpose. El pop, if you like. Uh, growing up, I used to love reading a book called The Heroic Book of Failures. It was a brilliant collection of stories of people failing in wonderful and spectacular ways. There are stories of adventurous expeditions that never left home, the tallest skyscrapers ever designed that never got built, or the most insanely innovative products that never got off the drawing board. My favorite reason uh, of an auditor given for the failure of one project being an unfortunate combination of overblown confidence and underwhelming skill. Now, none of these projects lacked vision. They had great vision, their vision in abundance, but they didn't have anything by which to move towards them. In his book, Atomic Habits, James Clear explains why this happens. He says, look, we do not rise to our goals, but fall to our systems. You have the most wonderful vision for your life, but if you don't have the systems to see that vision land in your day-to-day life, then nothing happens. One of the greatest projects that every person is working on is their own life and working towards happiness or the good life, as it's sometimes called, to build a life that is meaningful, purposeful, and that brings happiness and joy. But like all other projects, we often lack the right systems to see this come about. Laurie Santos, who is a cognitive scientist based at Yale University, teaches a class called Psychology and the Good Life. It's one of Yale's most popular courses, which is strange, right? Like you have all these young, high achieving, high status kids who still don't know how to be happy. They're extremely good at things that they have no idea why they are doing. And one of the things that she points to in her class is that the research shows that humans have all these intuitions as to what should make us happy, but these systems, by default, these intuitions, they're misguided. You know, the the big obvious one, money. We often think that more money will make us happy, but the too long didn't read of the research shows that money only makes you significantly happier if you live below the poverty line and you can't put food on the table, and then now you can. After that, the research shows that the more money you have does increase happiness, but you have to more than quadruple your income to move your happiness up by one point 
on a 100-point scale. And so for the amount of work that that would take, is it'd be a lot less effort just to keep a gratitude journal or go stroke a cat. Whether it's buying the new iPhone or going on that next beach holiday or starting the next side hustle, what we think will bring us happiness doesn't work. But as well as having these intuitions that are misguided, we also have a worry that is misguided. The worry is that if I find contentment, will that make me complacent? Don't we, don't we need some anxiety and striving and discontent in order to achieve? We worry that you know if we tell our kids not to worry about exams, they won't study hard. Or that if we make peace with the things out of our control, then we won't work against injustice. We know we're saved by grace, but surely a little condemnation is you know, needed to keep us behaving. But again, the research shows that it's the opposite. It's those with the highest positive emotions that are the ones taking action and making a difference in the world. Positive emotions, rather than making you complacent, give you the bandwidth to deal with other things. So these are the things that keep us from happiness and the good life. So what's the alternative? Here is what Jesus says. Our reading comes from Matthew chapter 22, uh, starting at verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Amen. As we said last time, Jesus is speaking about how to read and make sense of the Bible, but this is also about how we live and make sense of our lives. In Luke's gospel, there's a, a similar conversation around loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. But in that account, it's triggered by a guy asking, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I.e., how do we get a life in the future beyond death, but also a life that is good and happy now because it matters in eternity. To the hearers of what Jesus says in this reading, when Jesus says the law and the prophets, these are not just the scriptures. This is the story of who they are. It's their origin, their identity, their activity, and the hope that they will encounter these things in their life. And so last time we used this visualization. Uh, this sheet, which has printed on it, not all the law of the prophets, we didn't have enough space, but most, uh, a lot of the law and the prophets represents uh, the Bible. And as you read the Bible, it can seem overwhelming. It can, can be hard to make sense of it, but it also represents our life. Our life can feel hard at times. It can feel overwhelming. And Jesus says, look, if you'll take your understanding of the Bible, and if you'll take your life and hang it on, love God with passion, and to love people on purpose, then it will start to make a lot more sense. These are the systems through which the Bible and our life become something that we can understand and make sense of. And this is essential 
because you guys are amazing. There is so much vision in this community for our own lives, for our children, for this church, for our nation. And surrounding all of our own vision, God gives us this ridiculously big vision for our lives, the Great Commission, to go and make disciples of all nations. That's big, right? It's a massive goal. The way we talk about it here, the vision statement for HTBB is to play our part in the evangelization of the nations, the transformation of society, and the revitalization of the local church. But here's the thing, we don't rise to our goals, we fall to our systems. Yes, Jesus gives us a big vision for our lives, for our families, our church and nation, but before that, he gives us small practices to love God with passion and to love people on purpose. And the important thing to remember is the great commandment to love comes before the great commission to go and do. So what does it look like to hang our lives on these two things? Well, the easiest way to see how it works is to think about when it doesn't. If you like, this is when our systems let us down. So we said last week that the first thing to do is to, to love God with passion. Hang your life on this passionate worship of Jesus. But strangely, this isn't enough. This is one of the ways we can miss what Jesus is getting at here. If you like, this is a system for your life that will let you down. We unhook it from here. If you read the Bible, and you think that it's only about spiritual things, or it's only about me and my relationship with God, or even the Bible is just about Christians and our small group of people here, then first the Bible doesn't make sense, but also our lives won't make sense. The, the extreme of this is people who love God, but they don't really like people. This is Christians who have a cause, but don't have kindness. They usually have signs. <laughs> this is the kind of people that drew the most ire from Jesus. It simply doesn't make sense of the Bible or our lives to try and love God with passion and not to love people on purpose. Jesus says, love the Lord your God. The word that is important there is your. Like, the God who has made himself known to you. You need to love him, that God, your God, not other gods. This is important because there are other gods, like the God of work or money, and they, they overpromise and underdeliver, and they diminish you. It's like, it's kind of like if you, if you hang your life on those gods, it's like you're hanging yourself lower than you should be. So not only is worshipping other gods beneath who you've been created to be, they, they will never push you out into serving others. They're selfish. It's why if you worship your job, you'll never stop working. If you worship money, you'll never have enough. But as we worship the Lord, your God, the God we discover in Jesus, the glorious God, it raises us up. He is a God who is worthy of our worship, who we are created to be. But he is also a God who pushes us out in love towards our neighbor. It makes sense. To love God with passion you need to love the things that he's passionate about, or at least be open to becoming passionate about the things he's passionate about. What is God passionate about? Well, one thing is himself. Within the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are glorifying each other. So when we worship, we're not starting something, we're joining in with something. 
We don't just sing praise to God, we sing praise in Him. You know, it's one thing to watch a dance. It's a very different thing to join in. It's like the difference between watching the conga and being part of the conga. Like, we don't worship God at a distance. He's invited us into something that is active and exciting. It's something worthy of that which you were created for. But here's the crazy thing. God is also passionate about things that are not God. He is passionate about his neighbor and he invites us to be the same. We love our neighbor because he loves our neighbor. I mean, look at the 10 commandments. Five are about loving God and five are about loving others. If I was God, all of the 10 commandments would all be about loving me. He's generous, he gives us away. In the same way, you, you wouldn't accept it if I said, I love you, but I hate your kids. You can't say, I love God, and, but I don't love my neighbor. The love of God compels us outwards to love what he loves. Kate and I were uh, chatting with a lady and she was telling us how she's in the process of publishing a book of her own poetry. And she'd sent it off to the editor and then suddenly she was experiencing what she called a vulnerability hangover. The, oh gosh, I've shared my soul and now others are gonna read it. And she was processing and praying about this with the Lord and she said, she sensed the Lord say to her that he wanted her to go and help other writers who were struggling too. And she was like, oh, okay, great. Invite more people into my vulnerability, thanks. Uh, but then she comes to church and somebody shared a word of knowledge that God is wanting to release people in their creative gifting, especially writing, to lead others in worship. And she's like, okay, God, you're on my case. And so she shares it with her husband who says, well, why don't you just start by finding just one other person and meeting with them? And so she contacts the only other writer she knows in the church who's blown away because this other person had been really struggling uh, with her own writing and had just been on a walk with the Lord praying and saying, God, if you want me to carry on, I need somebody to walk alongside with me. When we offer our gifts in passionate worship to him, God pushes us out towards other people. So God pushes us out towards our neighbor to love people on purpose, but then the temptation could be to make it all about loving people. And this is another system that doesn't work. You could view it like this. It ends up, we unhook our love from God and it ends up all about people. This is interpreting Jesus' teaching as if it's all about the here and the now and forget the eternal things. This is to see the Bible as something we just go to for principles, to take or leave, or about how to live our best life now and nothing else. This doesn't work because, well, first, it's the love of God that sends us out to, our, to, to love our neighbor. Simply put, if God's not on the scene, there's no reason to try and love your neighbor in the first place. Why should you? It's survival of the fittest. This is why God says of loving God with passion, this is the first and greatest commandment. The order matters because priorities matter. And again, we, we don't always get this right. I have a friend who's a senior doctor, and uh, when COVID hit, he was given the job of signing off on all surgeries, because surgeries were a high-risk environment for uh, the team and the patients to catch COVID. So the hospital said, only essential surgeries can take place, and you get sign-off. And so on the first day, the first request he gets is for a vasectomy, to which he says, this is not an urgent surgery, to which he was told, the patient says, this is 
an urgent surgery. Some people obviously had a better lockdown than others. Uh, we don't always get our priorities right, but it is important that we do. Because good things that get prioritized if they were God things stop being good for us. Work, fashion, money, ambitions, identity, wonderful gifts, horrible gods. And they're horrible because they're selfish. This is why when you're, when you're facing a difficult pastoral or relational challenge, the received wisdom of the church has always been to, to ask first, what is the right thing to do? And then second to ask, what is the most loving way to do it? If you reverse that order, it doesn't work. All other things compete for our love, but God's love is not a zero-sum game. A friend said to me that when they were expecting their second child, he was really worried. And he knew it was irrational, but he said he was really worried that he wouldn't have enough love. He said, look, I love my first child so, so much with, with all my love. He was like, I can't imagine being able to love anything else as well. But as he discovered, that's not how love works. This is why Jesus says of the command to love people on purpose, the second is like it. Loving your neighbor is not in opposition to loving God, nor is, in, is it in opposition to loving yourself. It is of the same character. Look, if you view love as a transaction, then the math just simply doesn't add up. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. What's left of you that isn't loving God? Nothing. You've given it all to loving God. But then he says, love your neighbor. Jesus is the only God who, as you love him, you end up with more love than you started with. There is room in God's love for others. It's a bit like Mr. Kumar's tuk-tuk. Did you see this last week? Police in the state of Uttar Pradesh pulled over a tuk-tuk taxi to discover that there were a few more passengers on board than is usually considered best practice. Let's have a look at how many there are. There was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27 people. And the most incredible thing was he'd been pulled over for speeding. I don't know what kind of battery this thing runs on, but it could probably solve the world's energy crisis. There is room on God's tuk-tuk of love for others, way more than we would expect. If you love the Lord your God with everything, you'll be surprised by the amount of love left over for your neighbor. God's love is not a zero-sum game. The second reason that this system doesn't work is that it's God's love that not only starts us loving, but also sustains our loving. I remember um, when I was a teenager, our pastor said to us that to follow Jesus and to love others was really hard. And I remember discussing it with my, my friend Caleb, and we disagreed. We said that actually we found it quite easy to love our neighbor. Oh, how little we knew of life, of others and ourselves. Oh, if only that teenage clarity had been reality and not pride. Loving people is tricky. If you haven't found it tricky, it's because you haven't yet had the opportunity to really try. It's like at the gym. If you're lifting weights and it's easy, it's because you aren't really trying. And it's hard because other people are tricky, but also I am tricky. Without the love of God, our love for our neighbor will run out of steam, but also it'll go a bit weird. This is because we were made to worship. So if you don't worship God, 
You'll worship others and you'll raise humanity to the place of divinity. And then what you idolize, you eventually demonize when it fails to live up to the unfair expectations we put on it, which I think is at the root of a lot of online anger. The irony of, of not having God in first place, but putting people in first place is that you lose both. The temptation is to say, well, it was hard and painful. God let me down. So I'm going to unhook that. And then other people have let me down. So I'm going to unhook from that to I love my neighbor. It didn't work. They didn't change. Maybe the focus should be on me, which usually results in us putting our boundaries up, cutting people out, canceling those who don't think like us. And effectively, the system becomes my life is about me. I am my own and I belong to myself. Now, really, this is just a different version of, of only loving God, except that now I am in the position of God. One of the ways, though, that we try and justify it is because Jesus does say to love your neighbor as yourself. And there's a question, it's a good question. Do I need to love myself in order to love others? It's a popular question too. It's in the charts at the moment. Jordan Reiki's song, Nerve, has this line, how can I find a reason to love you when I don't love myself? Self, self. Uh, but it's a misunderstanding of love. So the answer is, yeah, if you despise yourself, you will find it harder to be kind to others. But the way we love ourselves is not what we usually think of as self-love or self-care. We should view ourselves as, as loved, but Jesus switches up the motivation and the application of that love. For the motivation, you could, and many of us do, root it in, well, I'm successful and spectacular. But what about the days when I'm not so spectacular and not so successful? The only sure place to root your motivation to see yourself as valuable is that this is what God says about you. As we've seen with the Bored Ape Yacht Club NFTs and cryptocurrency, worth is determined by the amount someone is willing to pay for something. And Jesus, the only one whose opinion matters, says that you are worth his life. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. That is how much he was willing to pay. That is our motivation. Very, very different from what the world tells us. But also, the application is different. Like Laurie Santos showed us in her research, uh, we're not very good at loving ourselves. We don't give ourselves what we need. Our default is often to ask, what's the least? That guy comes up to Jesus and says, you know, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Basically, he's asking, what's the least loving I can be and still be considered okay? What's the minimum I can do? And Jesus says, well, here's all the law and all the prophets. He doesn't want us to live small lives. He wants us to live expansive lives. The default when it comes to loving ourselves is to turn inwards, to pour into ourselves. But this doesn't work because we were created for community. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, i.e. as you love your neighbor, you are loving yourself. They're not in conflict with each other. They're mutually dependent on each other. You desperately need other people. And in fact, this is measurable. 
When you're with other people and you're engaged in a conversation you care about, your breathing can synchronize. As can, and this is nuts, as can the beating of your hearts, an entirely subconscious activity. That's how hardwired this is into the core of our being. You know, when you live in relationship with other people, you even start to outsource some of what regulates your emotional state to them. That's why when somebody loses somebody close to them, they, they say, you know, it's like a part of me died. And that's because it's true. Other people's words can calm us. They can anger us. They can even work at a distance. A text can have a similar effect to hearing the words spoken to you directly when you hear someone say, I love you, or asking, did you lock the door? We were, that's probably all you're thinking about now. Hopefully you're at home and you can check. Uh, we were created to be with others. We were born into the hands of others, fragile. Our lives hang on the kindness of others and our, our lives, emotional and social viability all depends on others. And because we need others, God made a way for that need to be met in that he created us with the need to serve others. In fact, after loving God, your greatest need in life is to find a way to serve others in a meaningful way. If I'm happy, I found a good question to ask is, have I got a way to serve others today? Have I got a way to serve others today? If I'm down, the surest way to get more down is to pour more time and more attention onto myself. And you know, that's, that's just who we are. And this is all before you add the Holy Spirit into the mix. Once the Holy Spirit is living in you, that is what he's compelling you towards, having restored you to factory settings and then upgraded your operating system. There's this saying uh, that goes, following Jesus doesn't mean you can't sin, just means you can't enjoy it anymore. Being filled with the Holy Spirit and then being selfish is like brushing your teeth and then drinking orange juice. It's possible, but it doesn't taste so good. The primary way you love yourself is not by wrapping your life around yourself, but by loving God with passion and loving people on purpose. This is the primary way you not only care for yourself, but it's also the way that you make most sense of your life. Now, another great question that then flows out from this is, well, how do I know when enough is enough? Now, there is a funny side to that. It's like, what stops me from giving out too much? I just can't stop giving away my money. And so again, Jesus doesn't directly address, direct, uh, address this because it's probably not our biggest struggle in life. Again, priorities. But it is a question. We've all probably been in that place where we've overstretched, we've given more than we had to give, leading to either exhaustion or over a long time burnout, at which point the temptation is to do what we had before, to wrap it around ourselves, to batten down the hatches, cut others out from our lives and just make it all about me. But it doesn't work because we need to serve others. Therefore, the place to root self-care is not into prioritizing yourself, but into humility. Humility is having a realistic view of yourself. You cannot pour from an empty cup. So what's in the cup? I had this many hours in the day. That never changes. 24. I've just been seven sleeping, three eating, two in the traffic. And that means I have this much left. But that's all God asks. Like, look at the command. It's very local. Love your neighbor 
as yourself. His command is to love your neighbor, not somebody else's neighbor. It's easy to get angry at injustices on the other side of the world, but that isn't what he's asked of us. Any digital outrage that doesn't land in local action, but also undermines neighborly relations is not a solution, but is part of the world's problems. What is in the scope of your influence? Jesus doesn't say love a cause, he says love your neighbor. So if in fighting for a cause you end up hating your neighbor, we've missed the point. It's local, but it's also sustainable. It's love the Lord your God with all your heart. It's a big ask, but it's not the biggest. He doesn't say love God with your neighbor's strength or your neighbor's gifting or neighbor's passion. It's love the Lord your God with your heart, your strength, what you have in your hand today. And it's practical. Love your neighbor as yourself. We have a model for what to do as we already do it. This isn't something miraculous. He doesn't say, love your neighbor as God loves them. He sets the bar actually at a reasonable level. He says, you know, I love myself in an entirely practical, attainable, though not always sustainable, but local way. I put myself first. That's the main way I love myself. I put myself first. And Jesus says, put others before yourself. And it sounds so simple but it's so, so rich. It's so usable from the simple things like being a better driver. Don't use your phone while driving because your neighbor is the not the one on the phone, but the one in the car in front. It's local. It also helps you be a better friend or a better spouse. It turns it from what can I get to what can I give? You know, in marriage, I am, I'm the only legitimate source of romance in my spouse's life. So get romancing. But it can also be built upon for way, way more complex situations. The, the uh, economist Michael Schulter has, for example, argued for a reform of the stock market around the slogan, no reward without responsibility, no profit without participation, which is built on this teaching. But it is costly. But that's the point. Despite our intuitions, this is what we're looking for. Something worth spending our lives out on. Jesus says this, all of the law and the prophets, all of the story of who you are and the hope of that story reaching its fulfillment hang on these two commandments. The only system that works is to hang your life each day on love God with passion and to love people on purpose. And in a fallen world, there is a tension in that. Because we have our sort of own internal gravity that kind of says, oh, let's just make it a bit easier. And it's like, oh, it's quite hard to aim high. So I think I'll just lower it. I'll hang my life down here. But the problem with that is it doesn't make sense of your life. It doesn't make sense of God's word because God has big dreams for your life. Don't settle for less than that which you were created. Hang your life where he says to hang your life. But then there's the stretch, because the more we try and love God with passion, to never let go of him, but also love people on purpose, the more our lives are stretched further and further and further. There is a tension in it, but it's a stretch which shouldn't surprise us, because the only person who ever did this perfectly ended up on a cross. And that's what he's alluding to here, where he says that all the law and the prophets hang, krem atai, which is the word used to describe someone being hung on a cross. 
We should expect this to be hard and costly. But what else is there? Who else lived a life as alive as Jesus? Who else in 33 years of life, three years of public activity through a small group of friends changed the world like Jesus? Yes, this will lead us to the cross, but if Jesus is present, whenever there is a death, there is always a resurrection. And so if this is what worked for Jesus, you can know it will work for you too. This is the life that we are looking for and longing for. I think of a dentist we know in the city who who gives of her time and her skills to serve in a poorer part of KL uh, and was attacked and robbed by a would-be patient. That is the risk and the cost of loving God and your neighbor in a falling world. But has that stopped her from going back and serving those who can't afford treatment? No, love in a fallen world takes the shape of a cross. And you might be thinking, well, then who can do this? This sounds like such a challenge. And it is, but the challenge has already been won. Because before this is something we do for others, this is something Jesus has done for us. Jesus who came not to abolish, but to fulfill the law. So he loved God with passion. He never let go of him, but he also refuses to ever let go of us, no matter how far we walk away from him. And it took him to the cross. He went to the cross for me. And what that means is that it is now not only a command, this is now a promise. It's not just you shall do this, but it's you shall do this. You shall become a person who loves God with passion and you shall become a person who loves people on purpose. And I need that promise because each of these ways to hang your life in the wrong way are not just things we do over the whole of our lives. This is what my life looks like every day. I am all over the place at different parts of the day, which is why Jesus says, love me with your strength. Just bring what you got in this moment now. Yes, it will go wrong, but do you know what? It still brings joy to your father in heaven. My my son, Cohen, who's just learning to walk at the moment, he's always pulling himself up on things. And it brings me joy to see him try and stand. It doesn't matter that he often falls back on his bottom or that he can't yet run. It brings me great joy that he's trying to be like his dad. That's you with this. Each time you try and do this a little, it delights your father in heaven. And sometimes that joy is tangible and it's that joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength to keep on going. And so as you have a go at imitating Jesus, following him a little, as you do this a little, you'll end up doing it a lot. It's all about Jesus. He is the only one who does this perfectly, who fulfills the law and perfectly holds on to God and holds on to his neighbor. And if I had budget, time and the skill, at this point, I'd rip down the sheet and behind it would reveal a person wearing a suit made of the law and the prophets, like a magic trick. But I don't have the skill, the money or the time or the budget. And and to be honest, we don't need that because we have an even better visual illustration, the cross. Jesus only ever asks us to do what he has already done for us. And as we look at the cross, the picture of what this life is like, we can have the confidence to know that this is the path to joy. And this is the path to everything that we and our world are longing for. And it's found in the most unlikeliest of places, the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen. Why don't we pray? You might like to stand uh, now wherever you are. We're gonna pray, we're gonna invite the Holy Spirit to come and take Jesus' words to us and make them alive in our hearts. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and fill us afresh, we pray. Holy Spirit, we wait on you.
I had a sense that for some people it's like it's like the picture in this verse of the, the different people coming to question Jesus. It's like there's all these different voices going on inside and, uh, and you just want to hear Jesus' voice. So we just pray, Holy Spirit, silence within us. The inner Sadducee, the Pharisee, the, the voices that tell us to go after things that are not of you. And help us to hear your voice. Holy Spirit, turn up the volume on Jesus' voice in our lives. And Holy Spirit, would you fill us afresh so that we may tangibly this week experience your love poured out into our hearts and that we might also experience the joy and the delight that you have in us as we try and obey you in these words. Amen. Amen.